you love us, you care about us, that you have brought us into your family. We know that each one of us was astray. You know that each one of us was astray and hopelessly lost. You sent your son to take care of that. For those of us that would grab a hold of what he did for us on that cross, I'm just so thankful. And we know that one day we're going to stand before you and we're going to be very thankful, so thankful. God, we would pray that uh, you'd help each one of us to live in the light of your goodness to us. We know that there's going to be tough days, there are trials, there are things that happen, life happens, there's the free will of man, right? But we know in all that, you can work all things for good, and you want us to continue to look to you in all things. Help us not to take our eyes off of you. God, I pray that as we look into your word today, that you would impact us greatly and change us, because that's what we need. We pray that you'd breathe um, your breath in us today. In Christ's name, amen. Amen. Well, aren't you glad we don't just sing songs on Sunday morning? We sing truths. Aren't you thankful for that? What a great day to be at church. Uh, it's also Father's Day. It's a great day for dad jokes, right? If you have a dad, let him have his sense of humor today, okay? <laughs> It's interesting, this last week I was talking with uh, somebody and uh, it was just an inadvertent side discussion. He said that uh, when he got married, he had heard that uh, his father-in-law just didn't have uh, all that great a sense of humor, you know? It was always corny, it was always weird, and finally he goes over to uh, the family's house and he's listening to this father joke around. He's like, man, this guy's brilliant, he just has a wrong audience. <laughs> <It> was, <laughs> all his daughters and wife just didn't get how brilliant his jokes were. <laughs> Guys get it, right? <laughs> we always want our dad to be something special. And uh, it was funny, I was listening, my son was scrolling through some jokes. Uh, the other day he's, he's uh, listening to these uh, jokes about a popular actor uh, being so tough and so strong. Um, but it reminds me of the dad jokes when I was growing up. You remember when you were a kid and you would say, uh, this is in the redneck village that I grew up in, my dad's so amazing he can drive two tractors at once, right? At the same time, going opposite directions. That's how amazing he is. Uh, some of the jokes that they were, that he was reading and laughing about, uh, <laughs> my, my dad is so strong and when he's doing push-ups, he's not pushing himself up, he's pushing the world down so tough uh, that he challenged Superman to a fight and the loser had to wear his underwear on the outside for the rest of his life. <laughs> we, want our, uh, we want our parents to be amazing. We want our dads to be amazing. But when we look around in our family, we want our kids to be amazing, don't we? And there's no way to get to that unless we are focused on Christ. A good dad, a good mother, a good child. Um, we have a world's way of representing that. It's whether or not they make us happy. But God has a way of measuring that, and we see that in Second Peter chapter 1. What is it that causes him to express joy in his children? That's what we're going to take a look at this morning. And it's something we can all aspire to, something that every single one of us should be about. Second Peter Chapter 1, we're in the second part of our series called Unflappable, and I want us to stand and read 
this passage once again together. 2 Peter chapter 1, verses 2 through 11, it says this. Grace and peace be multiplied to you in the knowledge of God and of Jesus our Lord, seeing that his divine power has granted to us everything pertaining to life and godliness through the true knowledge of him who called us by his own glory and excellence. For by these he has granted to us his precious and magnificent promises, so that by them you might become partakers of the divine nature. Did you see that in your Bible before? That's an amazing statement. Having escaped the corruption that is in the world by lust. Now for this very reason, also, applying all diligence in your faith, supply moral excellence. And in your moral excellence, knowledge. And in your knowledge, self-control. In your self-control, perseverance. In your perseverance, godliness. In your godliness, brotherly kindness. In your brotherly kindness, love. For if these qualities are yours and increasing, they render you neither useless nor unfruitful in the true knowledge of our Lord Jesus Christ. He who lacks these qualities is blind and short-sighted, having forgotten the purification from his former sins. Therefore, brethren, be all the more diligent to make certain about his calling and choosing of you. For as long as you practice these things, you will never stumble. Did you see that? For in this way, entrance into the eternal kingdom of our Lord and Savior Jesus Christ will be abundantly supplied to you. Do you believe that that is true? Amen. You may be seated. Father, as we look at this passage, I pray that you would once again open our eyes and our hearts, help us to be able to see, first of all, what is there? What is it that you have provided? What is it that you are asking us to do? But Father, help us also to see what is not there false expectations, false regulations, false things that would drive us to brokenness rather than to blessing. Pray that you would help us uh, to be able to see these things, to understand, to walk differently as a result. Pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Uh, in your notes, Eric Mason, writing a uh, book for men, says this, I consider myself a pound cake aficionado. I enjoy the crustiness of the top, the fresh out of the oven, as well as the moist interior. There isn't anything like a freshly baked pound cake to bless the soul. My wife and I went to some folks' home and had a delectable meal upon dessert being served. To my surprise, but not to my dismay, it was a pound cake. It came fresh out of the oven. I was ready to be anointed by its presence. However, upon reception of this delight on my tongue, something was deeply wrong. And I asked our host what kind of cake it was again. They replied, it's a pound cake. And then they said, oh, yeah, you recognize the difference? He says, in my mind, I'm like, yes. They said, yeah, we substituted out a pound of butter for a pound of applesauce. <laughs> he said, I felt like I've been bamboozled. You see, a pound cake isn't a pound cake without the pound of butter. I want it at least once or twice a year, not too often. But when I do have it, I want the real deal. Without knowing it, my host didn't realize that in changing that one ingredient, the identity of the cake changed from pound cake to just cake. In 2 Peter, the bold apostle gives us a list of ingredients in a secure, settled, and successful Christian life. To change the recipe is to change the results. There is a reason that Peter, a man who struggled in following Christ the way that Christ would have him follow, right? Right? 
He's always jumping out of boats and doing some crazy thing uh, before he focuses on Christ. Christ uses him as a way to point to us and say, be careful which way you follow. Peter's full of faith. We never doubt it. His heart is blessed to follow the Lord, but he's always running off his own direction first before he finds out what the Lord would have him be about. So Peter is the one, it's interesting, that says, hey, you want to stay strong and not mess up the rest of your life? I learned something, he said. We had to learn from a guy who has so many visible mistakes and now is on a straight course, right? We can learn from this apostle. And he gives us here a trail that we can follow, things, building blocks that we can work on in a Christian life that will be solid, that will be, as we have for the title of our series, unflappable. Last week, we uh, referenced a, an OSU study that highlighted uh, the ingredients in a healthy lifestyle and their significant finding that only 2.7% of the people that they interviewed had what was considered a healthy lifestyle uh, in that sample group that they were studying. A group that he says uh, was not focused on runners. It wasn't focused on trying to make people brilliant athletes. It was just being average, healthy Americans. Those four ingredients were not smoking, having moderate exercise, healthy food intake, and a healthy weight. And we noted that probably we would struggle with things on that list, right? And yet many people that are sitting here today would say, I live a healthy life. I have a healthy lifestyle. And what we mean by that is I've nailed one or two of the ingredients on this list. To just nail one or two of the ingredients is not to be healthy. That's what they are saying. And so it is with Peter. He says, you might have one or two of these words on this list nailed down. You might be able to say, man, I really get it when it comes to this or this. But he has a list of ingredients. He says, these things need to be yours and increasing, swelling up inside you. And if they are, you're not going to stumble. You're not going to run away. You're not going to fall apart. You're not going to wonder whether or not you're saved. You're going to see all of the beauty and all of the bounty and everything that it is that God has supplied for you so that you're confident that you're going to be entering into eternity. You'll see all that he has lavishly supplied. Very important to note, he's not saying that your works can save you or make you more saved, but everyone knows when you're running away from God, you will wonder at times, am I really saved? You're not going to wonder whether you're saved. God's got you in his hand. But there are a lot of broken and weak Christians because they have not followed this path that Peter says, you do this and you won't stumble. That's an amazing thing. So what is it that he starts with? We looked last week at applying diligence to your faith. That is to be available alongside God. Diligence is when he opens the candy, right? That kids, they run right there to make sure that they can get the supply. Diligence is make sure that your supply, everything on this list comes from a relationship with God. It starts with you being available to him. Nothing else on here matters if you're not a believer and alongside the Lord. If you're not those things, we got a place to start. We can introduce you to Christ today. But then you diligently, in your faith, say, I'm going to be alongside you, Lord. I'm going to do what you would have me do. So what's the first thing on the list after you have said, I believe and I'm going to be found alongside God? What do I do? It says, in your faith, supply moral excellence. I just want to make a couple of observations. 
I actually have one main point. It's the second one that we have here. One main point and just uh, three nuances that I want you to understand with that word, moral excellence. They all make up one package deal. It's important for us to wrap our minds around that. But he uses a word here, moral excellence. Moral excellence is virtue, goodness of action. In a moral sense, it's what gives man his worth, his efficiency. Now, in the the Greek culture, they use this term moral essence, and if you were to take a look at what they meant by uh, moral excellence, what they did not mean was what we mean by moral excellence when we use that term, all right? They had a lot of stuff that would be considered immoral, and yet they would still look at those individuals and say that they are virtuous or that they were excellent. What did they mean by that word, moral excellence or virtue? What they mean, in essence, is to know exactly who you are and put all of your strength into being the best of that kind of person that you can possibly be. Uh, If you were a warrior, to be a virtuous warrior was to be a conqueror that whenever you went out, you were always going to be about the battle. You were disciplined to prepare. You were uh, facing the right enemy. You were able to strengthen the people that were around you. But as a warrior, you were excellent at war. If you were an artist, you were excellent at art. You studied, you worked, you uh, were passionate about it, but you made sure that if you were an artist, you were excellent at that. If you were a speaker, you were excellent at that oration. You made sure that the way that you spoke had those clean lines and the efficiency, but shared exactly the thought that was in your mind and heart to share. Whatever you were about, be excellent at that. Key ingredients to moral excellence in that Greek culture was to know what you are and then to be excellent at that. When you import that into the Christian life, you're talking to somebody who he says, you're a believer. Now in your faith, in God, be diligent to start with virtue. In other words, know what you are. You're a believer. Now be excellent at that. It's just the bottom line. If you were to answer that question today, are you an excellent believer? How does your heart respond? Do you know that you're a child of God and are you excellent at projecting what it means to be a child of God? I want to make some observations. When we talk about moral excellence and when he says you need to pursue it, there is something that is called moral excellence and there is a way to make that grow. Moral excellence is not just the thing that you have done or the thing that you have produced. It is the energy that produces that thing. Let me give you a picture. Uh, In other words, virtue can be seen, but what's seen is only a trail that's left behind. I have a picture here of a room. Look how nice that room is. Isn't that just clean? Man, there was another picture. This is a photo stock, but this is a picture And then my mom said, why is it so dirty in here? Go back to that first picture. Is that really all that dirty? No, that's the cleanest room I've ever seen right there, all right? Monk would be settled in that room. (laughs) There's not an ounce of dust. That's absolutely beautiful. It's wonderful. What, What about that room begins to speak to you? You know, at first we look at that and we see a clean room and it's, oh man, that would be a great place to sit. But then you begin to think and say, oh wait, if I sat down in there, would I mess it up? 
And then I look at that room, and you know what happens to me? I just get tired. Do you know how much energy it takes to make your house look that clean? That's why people in other countries just have one room, all right? They get it. It takes a lot of energy to produce that. Here's the thing. That is the result of somebody who cares about their family and wants cleanliness to be a central part of who they are, right? But there is something in them that produces that, but that is not cleanliness, all right? That is not care. Care is the energy that produces that, but that is what pops out of an individual who is concerned about cleanliness. This is the way you have to look at moral excellence or virtue. There are certain things that will pop up in the life of a believer because you are virtuous, but those things are not virtue. We tend to try to constrict or say, if I do this or do this or do this, then I'm virtuous. And we're looking at the outcome. But the reality is God is looking at the heart. This is an important distinction. You can actually have things happen. You can have a clean room and not actually care about your family. Do you know that? You can have a clean room and not ever want anybody to come in there and see it. They'll mess it up. You can have a clean room and not actually be about family or about others. You can have a virtuous life in the world's eyes, have certain things that dot your life that look good on the outside, but not actually be somebody of moral excellence in your heart. What God says is, I want to look at your heart, and there are certain qualities that will ooze out of you. You will see these things, but I am concerned that your heart starts with the idea of being virtuous, that you will begin to pursue those things that are good. Moral excellence takes energy. It takes energy. There is uh, another book written for men, and uh, Patrick Morley uh, highlights these things. He says, we are accustomed to thinking of Ernest Hemingway as a boozy, undisciplined genius who got through a quart of whiskey a day for 20 years of his life, but nevertheless had the muse upon him. He was indeed an alcoholic driven by complex passions, but when it came to writing, he was the quintessence of discipline. His early writing was characterized by obsessive literary perfectionism. He labored to develop his economy of style, spending hours polishing a sentence or searching for just, just the right word. It is a well-known fact that he rewrote the conclusion to his novel, A Farewell to Arms, 17 times in an effort to get it just right. This is the characteristic of great writers. Dylan Thomas made 200 handwritten manuscript versions of his poem, Fern Hill. Even toward the end, when Hemingway was reaping the ravages of his lifestyle while writing at his Finca Vija in uh, Cuba, he daily stood before the improvised desk on an oversized pair of loafers on yellow tiles, from 6.30 in the morning until noon every day, carefully marking his production for the day on a chart. His average was only two pages, 500 words. It was discipline. Ernest Hemingway's massive literary discipline, which transformed the way fellow Americans and people throughout the English-speaking world would then express themselves. Michelangelo's, Da Vinci's, Tedoretti's, multitudes of sketches, the quantitative Discipline of their work prepared them for the cosmic quality of their work. 
Leonardo da Vinci on one occasion drew a thousand hands. In the last century, Matisse explained his own mastery, remarking that the difficulty with many who want to be artists is that they spend most of their time chasing models rather than painting them. Discipline is important. When one seriously trains, he willingly undergoes hours of discipline, even pain, so as to win the prize, running 10,000 miles in order to be successful at 100 yards. Discipline takes effort. Moral excellence will take effort. Do you agree? The question is, what is your energy producing? But, but there is something important here, and this is critical. It's not just about the energy that you do, or else we could get lost in legalism. Isn't that true? Moral excellence has boundaries. But moral excellence is not just about try harder or do more. When God is speaking to us and saying, in your diligence, apply moral excellence, he is saying, I want you to fan the flame of that nature that is now yours. You have a new nature in Christ. Amen? This is something that is new inside you. You are a new creation, it says. So now you are trying to feed that new creation. You are trying to feed that new nature. And the nature that you have drives your appetite. There's an interesting study that they did with predators. Um, they actually, in order to keep lions at bay, painted eyeballs on the rear ends of cows. Yes. This is an actual study that they did. Most intriguing thing, they could not hire enough people to keep the lions away from the, the, the farmer's animals. And the result was the farmers, in order to defend their livelihood, were killing an endangered species. They did not know how to keep the predator at bay, so they painted eyes on the rear ends of cattle. And what they found out was when a predator thinks it's being watched, it does not attack. Do you want to know one of the things I think that we do in our Christian life? We already know that we have this instinct in us, our old nature, that is ready to rise up and to ravenously eat and destroy what is our livelihood or destroy what is good or destroy that which is useful. And so we set up a bunch of rules in our life because we're thinking if we have these rules in our life, then we will be successful at keeping the predator at bay. It will feel all the time like we're being watched. It's an interesting statement made, though, in Colossians. Colossians chapter 2, verse 20, through chapter 3, verse 1. There's an unfortunate uh, break there, chapter break, but it's important for you to read it all the way through. It says, If you have died with Christ to the elementary principles of the world, why then, as if you were living in the world, do you submit yourself to decrees, such as do not handle, do not taste, do not touch, which all refer to to things destined to perish with use in accordance with the commandments and teachings of men. These are matters which have, to be sure, the appearance of wisdom in self-made religion and self-abasement and severe treatment of the body, but they are of, and you ought to underline this in your Bible, these rules and regulations are of no value. This is scripture. No value against fleshly indulgence. Do you know you can put all the rules in the world on yourself and you will still mess up? 
3.1, therefore, if you've been raised up with Christ, keep seeking the things above, where Christ is seated at the right hand of God. Moral excellence is knowing what it is that God would have you be about, but then realizing, hey, it's not about me putting regulations, it's not about my energy that's being there, but allowing God's energy to flow through me so that I will do what he wants me to do. That new nature doesn't have the appetite for those wrong things, and I'm feeding that new nature. So the energy that you have goes into making sure that that moral excellence is coming from your new nature. Moral excellence that comes from the old nature will just be trying to prove that you're right to the outside world. The old nature wants to be seen as a Christian. The new nature says, I want to be a follower of Christ. I want it to flow out of me. Old nature is all about what you do. New nature is all about what God does through us, allowing him to flow through us and work those things out in our life. Moral excellence will have boundaries, but those boundaries will be there to guide us, not to guard us. Patrick Morley was talking about a friend that he had, Jack, that was approached by a guy uh, who he was counseling and the guy finally looks at him, he says, you know what, all this stuff about Christianity, I, I really, I want to buy in. I want to follow. He says, but I just like drinking and smoking too much. I don't want to give it up. And Jack looked at him and he says, you know what, I drink and smoke all that I want as a believer. And the guy goes, really? And they began to have a discussion about what it meant to be a follower. Jack says, yeah, it turns out that as a believer, the more that I feed that new life, I don't want to drink or smoke at all. That's not part of what my nature desires. That quenches as Christ becomes more my passion. But I do it all that I want. That new nature just doesn't want that anymore. So it's not about stopping that right away in order to be a Christian. It's about letting Christ flow through you. But it takes a lot of energy to stay close to the Lord so that what he wants is what you want. you got to stay close to the Lord. Is that clear? We doing okay? Okay. Because this is not easy stuff, is it? <laughs> there we go. We're going to keep going, man. We'll get this. Don't worry. The key moral excellence is not about boundaries on the old nature. It's about feeding the new. Right back to the very beginning, that Greek understanding of the word. Know what you are and be excellent at that. Follow the Lord. Do you use boundaries to guide or to guard you is the question. But finally, moral excellence reveals a direction. Moral excellence, by its statement at the very beginning of this chain, and this is an important beginning, but it implies that you are headed somewhere. Uh, one person said before, you can't steer a parked car, right? If you say, man, I don't feel like I'm going anywhere. I don't feel like anything's happening. Well, you're not going anywhere. You're not rolling. There's no momentum. You can't steer a parked car. You have to follow something. When we talk about... Uh, the difference between book knowledge in Scripture and experiential knowledge. We talk about the difference between learning to water ski from a book and actually being behind the boat. Do you know that there's two different things? You can have all the book knowledge in the world, but you throw somebody that tow line, right, and throw them in the water, and it's a way different thing. Oh, that's what you meant, okay? When they say hit it and that pull begins to happen, you've got to be ready physically, but it actually requires something of you that's different than just head knowledge. You can't say got it or you'll be out of your boots and dragging, filling up with water really quick. 
But do you know that there's actually something else? Some people will spend all of their time in their book knowledge saying, well, you know what? I want to avoid the bank and I want to avoid hitting trees and I don't want to go into the parking lot and all of this kind of stuff. And they'll see all of these worries around them when they're looking at skiing in a boat. But you want to find out something really important? You just get towed by that boat and it turns out the boat also doesn't want to be on the beach or among the trees or in the parking lot. If the boat ends up in the parking lot, you've got bigger problems than whether or not you're skiing in the parking lot. You're hurting, the boat's destroyed, everything's ruined. When we tie ourselves to the Lord, he's going to keep us in the right channel. Now we're just coming behind, we're just dealing with the nuances of what it means to be attached to the Lord, but he's going to keep us in a safe place. He's going to tow us into waters that are appropriate. we got to hang on to the Lord, but moral excellence says, I am with him, and I'm going to follow him, and I'm going to allow his energy to be pulling me along. Now you're automatically avoiding 90% of the things you worry about when you look at a skiing situation. God will keep you at the right pace, heading the right direction, doing the right things if you'll just stay attached to him. All three of these realities make up one understanding about moral excellence. We got to be doing the right work. We got to make sure that we have the right boundaries. We got to make sure that we have that energy that we're being pulled along by the living God and then moral excellence will flood our life. We wrap up with this thought, moral excellence is where we start to tune up the Christian life. I can remember a short while ago, we had a little men's weekend. Uh, my dad and uh, Aaron, Daryl and I, we uh, all took the boys away camping. It was one of the rare opportunities. We, we tried to do this once in a while. We, we used to try and do it every single year. Uh, but at one particular little men's camp that we had in our family, uh, we had a fire-starting project. We spent the weekend trying to make sure that every fire that we had in camp was started not with matches, but by their own energy. Could they uh, strike steel uh, or flint uh, onto magnesium strip and then catch that spark into a little wad of something? Could they survive? It was a little survival skills thing, but it turned into a bonfire-making project, right? <laughs> But it turns out you can't actually get to a bonfire. You can't actually get to something that's dangerous to all the structures around you. I think that actually a part of a tent and some tent poles were consumed that weekend. <laughs> you can't get to that flame unless you start with something small. And you actually have to catch that spark. And at the beginning, that fire needs to be protected. It needs to be fed. It needs to be fanned into a flame and then appropriately. You're not worried about all of the stacking of other things on top of that unless you get this one part right. You've got to catch the spark and fan it into a flame. Well, that spark, according to Peter, is moral excellence. You remember what you are and you be excellent at that. I want to follow Christ with all of my heart. That's the declaration you make at the beginning of a life that's unflappable. Amen? Amen? And that's the declaration that we have to make in our heart if we're going to start on this trail with Peter. Let's pray. Father, we do ask that you would help us. Help us on this Father Day to, Father's Day to see those things that make men and women excellent. What is it that in your eyes causes us to be virtuous? What is it uh, that we need to be about. And I do pray, Father, that you would help us to make sure that we have the right energy, the right supply, the right focus, that all of the things that are produced in our life would come from you, but, Father, that we would be diligent to come alongside 
and have your energy work its way through us so that we are successful in the Christian life. Help us to live as sold-out believers in a way that causes others to see the hope that's in us and ask about Christ. Father, help us to be virtuous, morally excellent. Those people who have flowing out of us your character qualities, give us that this day, we pray in Christ's name. Amen.